If you find yourself traveling down an unmarked gravel road in Alaska, you may find yourself witnessing a terrifying and bloody sight. And then we travel to Texas to visit the new London school district. While the students were learning and the teachers were teaching, little did anyone know that a tragedy was about to strike that would change the world. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I am having a great day, but I'm sick. I'm currently sick. I don't know how much of the <laughs> how much of my illness is spraying out of my mouth right now onto my microphone, and I don't know what it is. Nowadays, whenever anyone is even slightly under the weather, people go, is it COVID? I don't know. It very well might be at this point. I've just been getting kind of sicker and sicker. I have some tests, uh, COVID tests coming in tomorrow through Amazon. So we'll find out. But I mean, again, like if I do have it, I'm hoping that it's just, you know, nothing. But um, I guess I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see how much I sweat out while I'm in this closet while I'm recording this episode. Maybe it'll make me feel better. Probably won't. I'll probably get progressively more and more sick as the episode goes. My morning, I didn't even go to work today, which people who know me, it's like pulling teeth to get me to not show up to work. Um, I spent about four hours watching Dragon's Den on YouTube. That's pretty much been my entire morning. And I said, okay, let's at least be slightly productive here. Um, let's get some work done. So here I am recording another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. And someone who is joining us this episode, walking into Dead Rabbit Command right now, is one of our legacy Patreon supporters. Everyone give it up for Superfine Volpine. Woohoo! Yeah, come on in, Superfine Volpine. Welcome back to Dead Rabbit Command. Superfine, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, I totally understand. Trust me, I do. Just help spread the word about the show. You have no idea how much that helps out. Super fine. I'd probably stay about 10 feet away from me for this episode, but I'm going to toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. Go ahead and catch him in your little furry, foxy hands. Let's all get on board. Drive us all the way out, too. Everyone hop on board. Let's head all the way out, too. Alaska. <laughs> Driving on up to beautiful Alaska. The snow's falling. Catching snowflakes on our tongue. Doing all that stuff. You're like, Jason, maybe you should shut your mouth if you're in a car full of people. Well, anyways, uh, you guys tie me up in the trunk. We finally get to Alaska. Specifically, we're headed to Chugiak, Alaska. Chugiak, Alaska. Now, Chugiak is an unincorporated area in Alaska. You can find it on a map, but it's not technically a city. It's just like a town that's sitting there. Now, nowadays, it's a modern town, right? They have buildings, they have walls. They have things like that. But back in the day, we're headed all the way back in time to like when this town was first being set up, right? You had to build your own house. You had to go out to the woods and like chop down trees and then put them in order. <laughs> I played with Lincoln Long because I know how it's done. But we're going to meet this family that's in this area. And we have a father. We're going to go ahead and call him Joey. And then his daughter, we'll call her Madeline. And then there's a wife and a son. And they're not really in the story, so they don't even get names. But you have a wife and a son, little baby boy. They're back at home, and Joey and Madeline are out chopping down firewood for their fireplace because it's Alaska and it's super duper cold. 
Now, Madeline always loved to help her papa, right? She was always like, Dad, can I help you chop down those trees? And he's like, no, of course not. You're a little girl. You can't do that. And then she'd be like, Dad, can I help you hunt bears? And he's like, absolutely not. They'll eat you. Although I could use you as bait. But he he loved his daughter, right? So he wouldn't just... It was not the fact that she was constantly trying to help him out that was annoying him. He did love his daughter. They went on these little adventures together. On this particular day, he was chopping up firewood. He was getting firewood, right? This was back in the day when... We don't actually have a date for this story. This is one of those stories that just took place sometime before the 1990s. He's chopping down trees to make firewood. So he's chopping down trees out in Alaska in the Chugiak area. He's chopping down trees and then chopping up the trees to make it little little logs, little little pieces of wood, cords of wood, I think is what they're called. So him and his daughter can huff him back to the cabin and everyone could stay warm. But as he's cutting all this wood down, making all these little pieces of wood, he, he obviously he needs to take a break. His muscles are getting sore and stuff like that. So he knows that he needs to rest. He knows that he's a biological human and he needs to take a break every once in a while. However, he's also smart enough, and I'm sure experience has taught him, that Madeline, his five-year-old daughter, he needs to be aware that her eagerness to help out is sometimes dumb, right? Obviously, with the bear example. So, as he's chopping down the trees and chopping down the wood, and then he decides to take a break, he takes his mighty axe and he cleaves it into a nearby tree. A thunk! And he did that specifically... Because he is thinking, okay, if I leave the axe on the ground, Madeline's going to pick it up. Or she's going to trip on a rock and fall on top of the axe. Or she'll slip in the snow, fall right on the blade. Like, she's just a clumsy kid. I need to put this axe away. I don't have a toolkit. So he wedges it into the tree as hard as he can. And then he leaves. Not like he didn't go, he didn't go back home and leave her there, but he kind of like turns his back to the tree and starts to walk away so he can sit down and enjoy a break. Well, he's just turned his back for a few moments when he hears a sickening thud behind him. The cold Alaskan air whips around him. A squirrel. Is shaking his head. He hears the sound of a squirrel going, oh no. He's shaking his head. Joey turns around and sees his daughter laying face down in the snow. The axe that he had wedged into the tree is laying next to her body. And the lily white snow is quickly melting as warm human blood covers it. Madeline, Madeline, he yells as he runs over there and he flips his daughter over and her head has been cracked in two. What had happened was Madeline did a Madeline thing and she saw the axe in the tree and she goes, oh, you know, I know Papa needs to take a break. I want to help. I don't understand anything about human strength, but... I'm sure I can wield this axe and chop down a couple trees. And she grabbed the axe, and he didn't wedge it in as much as he thought he had. And she grabs the axe, and she actually pulled it down, and it split her head open. And when he flipped over his daughter, her face is completely covered in blood. It's still squirting out. He's like, ah, my new shirt! Oh no, my new shirt! 
He picks up the body of his daughter. I gotta get the jokes in when I can, because trust me, this is the most lighthearted story in this episode. He picks up the lifeless body of his five-year-old daughter and begins sobbing, sobbing openly over his little girl. All she wanted to do was help out. She cleaved her head in two. And killed her instantly, too. There was no hope for this girl. It wasn't like, maybe I can get her to the doctor. She was clearly dead immediately. Apparently, according to the story, he sat there and held the body of his daughter and never moved from that spot. He mourned and wailed and sobbed for days and days and days until he finally succumbed to hypothermia and died in the middle of the forest, his daughter still cradled in his arms. They say to this day, if you head out to this area, they say there is an unmarked road called Badarka Road. It's not on any map, but it's a gravel road, and it's located in the Chugiak area. It's actually off of South Birchwood Road, if you're in the area. They say that to this day, if you drive out to this area after 3.30 a.m., you may see the ghostly image of this father still cradling his daughter. Her face still dripping with blood. Her lifeless corpse just kind of hanging there limp. But the father's ghost is still wailing in the night. Mourning the loss of his five-year-old girl. This is a really interesting ghost story for me. Because this is a story that... I mean, again, I got it on the Shadowlands.net. We don't know how much is urban legend, how much is real. What are the verified sightings of this ghost? But... Let's take a look at it as a ghost story. You'll find this in other places other than the Shadowlands.net. But, you know, did it actually happen? Is it urban legend? But let's assume that, let, let's assume for the sake of the argument that this is a ghostly encounter that people do have. Very, very fascinating story. I think this would be, when I was reading this, I thought, okay, I had to go back and check a couple times. I was like, okay, I could see definitely any parent losing a loved one, losing a child. And, and not leaving the spot. Like, they just die of a broken heart. Well, he didn't die of a broken heart. He died due to exposure. But I had to keep checking. I was like, but he had a family at home, right? Like, he had a wife and a son at home. And I, I thought, I go, I'm sure he was broken up about it. I'm sure that he openly mourned for the loss of his oldest daughter for the rest of his life, right? It's something you really never get over. But I'm sure he also knew that he had a wife and son at home. And they... Needed the firewood. <laughs> Remember, he's out there cutting firewood. They're in Alaska. I'm sure at a certain point he would have gone home, right? Obviously, would have went home and told his wife what happened, and their lives would have went on. I don't believe that he sat there for days and days and days and days and died of hypothermia. I don't even think it would take days and days and days and days to die of hypothermia in Alaska. But what I think this is is this is a classic case of. Psychic energy recording an event and playing it over and over again. I believe that little girl's soul has moved on and his soul has moved on. What we're seeing is this moment in time frozen because of this raw psychic pain leaving its mark on the universe. If you went out to this area and saw this apparition, I don't believe you could interact with it. I don't believe you could talk to it or move it. You're like taking selfies behind it. You're like giving him bunny ears. I don't think any of that could happen, even though he may be moving, even though his chest may be heaving and tears streaming down his face. 
I don't think that you could interact with it in any sort of way. I don't think it's a ghost in that sense. And that can confuse a lot of people. So if somebody came out here and saw the bloodied girl, you'd go, well, obviously she died here. And you're seeing the ghost of a man holding the body. Now, he could have died in Nebraska. You know, he, him and his family could have been like, you know what, let's go somewhere else. They go down to California, find a bunch of gold. They could have went anywhere else. But what we're seeing is not his ghost and her ghost. It's just a recording. We are ghost aficionados. If you're listening to Dead Rabbit Radio, you're not just a casual, you just don't have a casual interest in the paranormal. People who listen to this podcast really know their stuff. And that's why you listen to this podcast. So I think that we know that there are different types of ghosts and there are recordings and there are actual spirits and then there are demons disguised as ghosts and there's just like mental illness or mistakes, right? That there's not really a ghost. But we can see, I think what happened was people were seeing this apparition in the area and they made up the last part of the story. They made up the part saying, oh, and then he died there too. Because that would be a way to explain why his ghost is there, but it's not... It's not his spirit. There's no one's spirits there. It's just this image. But to a casual person who doesn't have a lot of interest in ghosts, somebody who's just driving on this road late at night and saw that, they would go, well, she must have died there because she's bloodied. She looks like she's dead. And then he must have died there too because his ghost is there. But that's not how ghosts work. Assuming this story's true, right? The story could be complete urban legend. I can get 100 emails after this episode's recorded saying as such. But I think if the story is true, it's a perfect example of that psychic recording. Because we talk about them from time to time on this show in general. But also in general, they're quite boring. A lot of times it's just a ghost. There's no dead kids. There's no bloody kids. I'm like, boring. A lot of times it's just a ghost walking down a hallway or something like that. Or footsteps down the stairs. And that's a recording of an event. And, you know, you can't, that doesn't really make for a good audio podcast. But when um, when a kid's been cleaved with an axe, you have such a dynamic scene, a man in the snow cradling his kid. Just for the record, and considering what I'm going to talk about on the next segment, I'm not pro-kids dying. I just feel like I have to put that out here, out there. But this is such a dynamic scene, and I, it is a perfect example. I don't believe, I think both of their spirits have moved on but this left a indelible fingerprint in the landscape there. So a creepy story coming out of Chugiak, Alaska. If you do happen to see it, I don't think you could interact with it. However, I would not put that to the test. Don't go out there and go, Jason said this is harmless and start like kicking him in the head. You figure your foot's just going to pass through him and then he gets mad and he starts using his daughter as a club trying to knock you down. Don't put it to the test. Don't put it to the test that Jason said it's harmless, but I think it might be. But again, I, I wouldn't bet money on it either. I wouldn't go out there and start goofing off with them either. Superfine, Volpine, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the world-famous Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind Chugiak, Alaska. Take us all the way out to New London, Texas. This is a story, really this episode is the one I talked about last week that I thought was too depressing to have on a Friday. I really don't know what happening on a Thursday makes it any less depressing. We're headed back to March 18th, 1937. And we see a, as of the time, back in 1937, a state-of-the-art school. This was, New London was one of the richest school districts in the United States. And the reason why was they had oil money. 
So you had all these oil barons and all these oil pumps and all these oil workers and everyone had a bunch of cash in their pocket. So we're going to build the best school we possibly could. So they built the New London School. Now, New London School was built back in 1932. And at the time, it cost them a million dollars to put together. I don't even think a modern high school costs a million dollars. And back then, that was equivalent to 19 million bucks to build one school. Now, the way it was built, this is a story that there's so many mistakes made. And then we get to this huge cataclysm. We get to this horrible event. And you think any one of these things could have changed and... None of this would have happened. But this is an interesting story because had this not happened, what could have happened? What could have have played out? The New London School was built on a slope. So what that meant was you had the school built. It wasn't like a teeter-totter school. You're like, oh, it's time to go to science class. Everyone rolls to the other end. It was built on a slope, so you had this giant gap of airspace beneath it. It wasn't like a basement. It wasn't any... I mean, the building was built around... You couldn't go skateboarding underneath it, but you had just like this giant empty space between the ground and the school because it was built on the slope. And this is oil town, baby. You got oil, you got natural gas, you got all this stuff. So when they were building the school, they said, you know what? Hey, I got a good plan. I got a good plan. What if... What about instead of building... The building, so we need to bring gas into the school. So, like, our heaters need to have gas pipes going in. And our ovens. I don't know what else you'd have at a school that would need all this natural gas. But they go, what if we just tapped into an existing natural gas line? Because we got them all around. We're right in the middle of oil and natural gas fields. Why don't we just have... Why don't we just literally tap into one of these natural gas pipes? Why this is so insane. Why don't we just tap into one of these natural gas pipelines so we're getting pure, unfiltered natural gas into our school? We'll save a ton of money. We spent a lot of money building it. And they say, yeah, it's a great idea. That is a great idea. We'll just use the resources we have around us, all this natural gas, to heat the building. The thing is, is that prior to this event, and this event is the reason why we do this, Natural gas had no smell. The story I'm about to tell you is the reason why when there is a gas leak, you can smell it. Because naturally, natural gas is completely undetectable. It's tasteless. It has no smell. Basically, you're walking around with a canary, and when the canary dies, you leave. That was the way you detected it. Nowadays, they've added an ingredient into it so you can smell it. And you can go, "Uh uh-oh, there's too much natural gas in this area, which in most places is any, right? You don't want any natural gas just floating around. Because of what happened at New London School is the reason why you can smell natural gas. It's odorless, it's colorless, you can't taste it. But it does affect the human body, right? It can kill you if you get too much of it in. Now, New London School, it was weird. It went from K through 12th grade. It was all of the possible age groups you could have in there, which I imagine I imagine the bullying would be hilarious. You'd have seniors pranking like second graders. They're like, why are you picking on me? Because you're younger. Throwing them in the toilet and stuff like that. You also had a huge... <laughs> I don't know if they actually had a huge bullying problem. That's what I would have done. But they also had a weird outbreak 
of headaches. Students were constantly complaining that their heads hurt. Now, to the administrators, they probably figured, oh, you know, maybe it's flu season. <laughs> is March is March known to be a flu season in Texas? It's weird that people keep complaining of these headaches. It also seems kind of weird that the shorter they are, <laughs> the closer they are to the ground, the headaches are worse. But I don't know. What could it possibly be? Couldn't be that we have this massive crawl space that's 253 feet by 56 feet underneath our school that no one ever goes to. It can't have anything to do with that or the fact that we're sitting on a bunch of natural gas or that we've tapped into said natural gas to heat our wonderful school. It, it, it would have nothing to do with that. So kids are constantly walking around holding their heads. Uh, and the administrators are like, I don't know why you're complaining. They're looking at these kids. They're so short to the ground. They're like, why does my head hurt? And the six foot tall adults like, I don't know. Anyways... The epidemic of headaches continues for a while, and nobody really knows what it is. No one thinks for a second it could possibly be the fact that these kids are inhaling natural gas all day long at school. Well, on March 18th, 1937, it was 3.17 p.m. Now, the way the school was set up was that you had it divided, and most American schools are like this, you had it divided into a set of different buildings, right? You have a gymnasium, then you're going to have these buildings over here for administration, and these buildings here for certain grade levels, and so on and so forth. At 3.17 p.m., most of the school had been dismissed already from classes. So, K through 4th is gone at this point. They've gone home. However, you still had 5th through 11th grade, which I don't know if the school just went to 11th grade. That's weird, too. I figure the seniors just had a senior ditch day this day. But 5th through 11th grade was still in classes. So we're talking about between 500 to 650 students are still in school. And there's also 40 teachers there as well. Now, it's interesting to think, how do they not know how many students were there on that day? That's a pretty big gap in numbers, 500 to 650 students. The reason why they don't have a clear number is because this was oiled field territory. You had a bunch of traveling people who would work different jobs, and they'd move their families out to this oiled field, they'd work there for a while, and then they'd move on. So we don't know for a fact, because people would show up, take their kids to school, go about their job for three months and then move on. We don't know how many students were actually in this building. There may be people who were victims of this event that were literally wiped out of the history books. Just completely vanished. No one knows their names. No one knows where they came from. Between 500 and 650 students and 40 teachers are here at New London School still attending class. About 100 feet away from the main buildings, there's a gymnasium. And in this gymnasium, there's a PTA meeting going on. So you have a bunch of parents and teachers here attending this. Quite a few students still in classes with their teachers. And in the shop class, in the wood shop class, Lemmy Butler, the shop teacher, turns on an electric sander. People outside the school, because this is right in the middle of a residential area, right? People who are outside the school, what they see is 
you have this main school building where all these hundreds of students are in and these 40 teachers. You have this main school building. What they see is the walls bulge out. You're looking at a building and you don't really hear anything at first. You just see the walls bulge out of the building. And then they bulged out in such a way that the roof fell completely into the building. And then you watch the walls crumble in as well. What happened was when Lemmy turned on that elect, this is what we assume, right? This is kind of what they put together. When Lemmy turned on that sander, it started an electric spark that ignited the natural gas that at this point had completely filled up that massive crawl space. And when he turned on that sander and that gas ignited, it was such a violent explosion, there was no flame. The building just bulged out, the roof came down, and then the walls collapsed in on it. And people saw no fires. There was no idea of what could possibly have happened. But this explosion, the sound of it, was so loud, people could hear it 12 miles away. People who did hear this, right, people who heard this explosion, began to head out to the area. So what in the world what in the world was that? What could have made such a huge boom? And as people start coming into the area, they see people running out of their houses towards New London School. As they're continuing to drive their car down the road, they see parents who would run out of the gymnasium after this explosion. They're already digging through the rubble with their bare hands. You had calls go out to all of the oil fields in the area. Grab your gear and get to the school. And it was such a local event too, right? This is a local school and the people who are trying to get the rubble out of the way, who are trying to save lives, also knew the people in the rubble. You had the story of a bus driver, Lonnie Barber, who was driving his bus, just dropping kids off. It's another normal day when the explosion happens. He continued his route, even knowing that he had four of his own children in that building when it blew up. He needed to get these kids home. That was his job. That was his duty, right? And he goes along the route, dropping off these kids, until finally he gets to the school where he is able to help in the rescue effort as well. Out of the four, three of them were totally fine, but he did lose his son in the explosion. You begin to have people come from outside the immediate area. Because at this point, it's become statewide news. Pretty soon, this is going to be international news. At the time, this was one of the worst catastrophes in American, if not in world history. Because what we're looking at is possibly 650 kids and 40 teachers blown up in an instant. You had rescue crews coming from all over the state. You had everyone from the Texas National Guard to Boy Scout troops headed out there. Removing rubble, rescuing people, and pulling out dead bodies. And this explosion was so violent, there was one kid, the only way they were able to identify he was in the building. Obviously, the parents were looking for him. They never found his body. They found a piece of his clothing 
that he was wearing that day. That was all that was left of him. And his parents remember him leaving in those pants. He was completely vaporized. Because this is such a huge story, eventually the reporters show up. And when reporters show up to start reporting, they're instantly given orders, start digging. Put down your microphone and start digging. Walter Cronkite, world-famous journalist, who went on to cover World War II, which was really right around the corner, right? This is 1937. Walter Cronkite, who covered World War II and the Nuremberg Trials, later in life said, quote, I did nothing in my studies nor in my life to prepare me for a story of the magnitude of that New London tragedy, nor has any story since that awful day equaled it. You're walking around, grieving parents, removing rubble, looking for their child. I, I mean, it, it's just, it, it, it boggles the mind, right? It boggles the mind. And you're hoping that they're alive, but each hour that passed, that hope grew dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Again, we don't know how many students were at the school. The number goes from 500 to 650. What we do know is 294 students were killed in the explosion. And then another 112, 115 suffered serious injuries. And 130 escaped serious injury. You had people trying to sue the school district, but those lawsuits really didn't go anywhere. It's something that we can look at now and go, well, if they had done these things, it could have been preventable. But at the time, and I, you know, the, you know, it was kind of hard to sue corporations back then, companies back then. But none of the lawsuits went anywhere. The superintendent, you know, he was held ultimately responsible. He had to quit because he was told if he didn't quit, he was going to be killed. The mob, the people were just going to do mob justice. Which you may figure, yeah, you know, he's in charge. He's the one ultimately in charge. So he's the one you're going to hold responsible for this incident. And I can see that it's also tragic that he lost his own son, a niece, and a nephew in the explosion. So this wasn't some guy sitting on the edge of town in a high rise being like, ah, another day, another dollar. Like, he lost people here too. But he was the one who was deemed ultimately responsible. He should have made better decisions and... He was forced to step down. But this event, this event shocked the world. This is the reason now why natural gas has a scent added to it. That's why. Because it filled up this school for so long and filled up this crawl space for so long and people could not detect it. And 294 children were blown to pieces that they've now added this element. So this is one of those stories that it's an absolute tragedy. And at the same, I got a couple things to say about this and then we'll wrap it up. I know it's kind of depressing, but it's an absolute tragedy. Obviously you have to think like, had this not happened, we wouldn't have added the scenting agent into the natural gas, or at least not have been doing it that early. So you wonder by this school blowing up, did it prevent even greater catastrophes down the road. I mean, I'm never. I'm not saying that that means it's good. But you know what I mean? Like, 
detecting, being able to smell... Imagine this. Imagine if every so often a single house blew up. Or maybe not even that dramatic. Imagine if every so often a single house, a single household died because of a natural gas leak and they couldn't smell it. And they couldn't taste it and they couldn't see it. If you had 200 households over the course of, say, maybe four years spread across the country and they had these natural gas leaks and they just died, you would still have companies going, well, well, how are we going to fix it? Like, you should just be responsible for that odorless smell you have in your house. But if you had 200 households and each household had four people in it, that's 800 people dead from this same thing. It's the dynamic nature, right? It's the dynamic nature of this tragedy, the instant death of all of these people that make people go, wow, that's unsafe. Let's fix that. You had people dying in car accidents for years and years and years and years and years and years and people were like, I don't know what we're supposed to do about it. It wasn't until I remember as I was a kid, they were like, maybe wear your seatbelt. There was like a Sesame Street or there were like commercials for kids to start wearing their seatbelt. And then eventually it became a law. But there was never like a thousand people died in a single moment because they weren't wearing their seatbelt type of thing. That would have mandated it right away. So we have that. We have this idea. One, it's just it's just a crazy story about like just little things that can go wrong. And they weren't even knowing they were wrong. They only have a story that really saves lives. In the long run, I think more people have been saved because they can smell gas, right? Natural gas. But then the other interesting thing about this story is it's pretty much completely forgotten. The fact that Adolf Hitler, Chancellor of Germany at the time, sent a letter of condolence, a telegram of condolence to the United States to be like, hey, I'm sorry that school blew up. This was an international tragedy. People around the world were looking at this and being like, I can't believe, like, those poor families, those poor kids, what a horrible tragedy. But no one remembers it. I had never heard about this. I had never heard about this. I had always heard that we put a smell into natural gas like that is not a natural thing that's something that humans add so we can detect it but i didn't know it was because a school blew up and you have this national really international tragedy that was on everyone's mind and now here we are less than a hundred years later and it's just completely forgotten or maybe it isn't maybe everyone's like jason yeah everyone knows about this i didn't and i'd be surprised if it was common knowledge just completely forgotten all these deaths. We remember that this additive was added because we encounter it quite often. Hopefully not a lot because that means you're exposed to a lot of natural gas. But this horrible tragedy that everyone wept around the world is now just a, a lost memory. A Wikipedia page, right? Just like that story of that man in the forest with his daughter may have been the talk of the town for a while after it happened and, and eventually just fades away. just becomes a obscure ghost story you find mentioned a couple times online. All of this human tragedy has been reduced to a whisper of a memory. Fascinating stuff. And I wanted to end this episode not with my traditional deadrabbitradio at gmail.com, all that stuff. I wanted to play, because I, I find this so perplexing, I wanted to play a clip from a newsreel not to depress you even more, just kind of an oddity. I wanted to end it with this. This newscaster might be one of the most callous, <laughs> might be one of the most callous newscasters 
that I've come across. Like, he is talking about these kids. I think he uses the term blown to bits at least once. At least once. It's fascinating. And again, this was a huge story at the time that changed the world in the way that we interact with natural gas. It's, it's saved countless lives. But in the end, it's been forgotten. But let me play this news clip for you and... It's just weird. I just I just want to play this news clip for you. I can't imagine a modern broadcaster talking like this. But yeah, it's just uh, weird. Let's go ahead and roll that. It is with deep regret that we bring you these graphic, appalling scenes of one of the greatest tragedies in American history. Hundreds of school children and their teachers killed and mangled, some of them literally blown to bits others crushed by falling masonry. When their new consolidated grade and high school in the center of the rich East Texas oil field was shattered by a terrific gas explosion. Had the blast occurred 10 minutes later, school would have been dismissed and the death toll small perhaps. But it struck when only the lower grades and a few others had left, catching almost the entire student body in an inferno of flying debris and falling walls. There was no warning. Before the eyes of persons in the vicinity, including scores of parents assembled for a meeting in a nearby building, the schoolhouse, one of the finest rural structures in the country, suddenly burst asunder and collapsed. There's scarcely a home in the entire school district untouched by the disaster. A disaster caused, it is believed, by gas pockets, which had collected in the school's sub-basement. In the long list of American catastrophes, this is one of the worst. The entire nation bows in grief. 